Welcome to Wonders of History, Season 1, Episode 1, The Other West. Sometimes I find myself watching those clips from late night TV shows or YouTube videos, you know, where they walk over to random people on the street and they start asking them questions and usually it's either to prove a political point or just to land a joke. And I think about doing the same thing, except I'd be asking people questions about history. I mean, I am unequivocally a huge nerd when it comes to history. So naturally, you know, it interests me to hear what the common take is about our past, how your average person who doesn't really make a habit of studying history views it. Everyone has their own interests after all, right? You know, for someone who's really into football or gardening or movies, it might be interesting or maybe a little bit cringe-inducing for them to see me in one of those clips and to hear the layperson's concept of their favorite pastime. It's a perspective that you don't often get when you're so passionate about something. But in the context of history, there's this other really interesting layer to it. A layer that says something about our society and our humanity in general. You see, I'm pretty sure that a person from the past, whether they be from 1800 AD or BC, would be just as interested in how that average person on the street views their society too. Could you imagine bringing someone like Cicero or Charlemagne or Voltaire or hell, even someone as recent as FDR in the time machine and having them listen in on those hypothetical surveys about their respective eras? Those are all pretty big historical figures, right? Like, they certainly had their own opinions of their own time and their place in it. Think about the shock or outrage or disappointment they might feel about our misconceptions of their actions. And then... What about you? How would you feel if you were in a history class about your own time 500 years in the future? But there's more to it than that. Our concept of the past and how we're related to it can radically change our outlook of life, what we think our options are, and therefore how we act in the future. Now there's a famous quote from Karl Marx that I love, and I know he's a bit of a controversial figure, just another example of how we interpret the past. You see what I'm getting at here? But I think he was definitely onto something when he wrote that men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under the circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. The tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. And as I was writing this series about these fascinating people that I'm about to introduce to you all, I couldn't get this idea out of my mind. This idea of bringing some of these individuals from the past that I'm going to be talking about soon and going out on the town with them to ask your average person some questions. And I would love to see that person from the past reaction to the answers that I received. I'll give you an example. If I were to go up to someone and stick a microphone in their face, and give them some clues, and then ask them to guess what civilization I'm talking about. It would be pretty revealing to hear their response. So I'd give the description. An ancient civilization in the Mediterranean. A civilization with a rich heritage, flourishing culture and art and architecture, 
vast trade routes, a formidable military, a pantheon of gods who wielded authority all over the western part of their known world. What civilization are most people going to think that I'm talking about? The first one that's going to come to most people's heads, yours and mine included, is Rome. And of course it's Rome, right? I mean, Rome conquered their known world and held it for centuries. Rome is undoubtedly at the foundation of Western civilization. But here's the thing. It might not have been. And it might not have been because before it became unstoppable, before it conquered its entire known world, there was another civilization in the Mediterranean. A civilization that would have been a perfect answer to my little guessing game earlier. And believe it or not, there were some moments in history where things could have gone much differently. Where it might have been that civilization that would be at the foundations of our modern world. And if things had gone different, the average person in the present would at least have known more about the Carthaginians than just their name in passing. And hell, I mean, some people aren't even familiar with the name. Carthaginians. But if you're one of those people, it's totally okay, because, you know, no one really expects you to be. So let me fill you in a little. The Carthaginians were a people from the coast of North Africa who inhabited the city of Carthage, which today is located inside Tunis, the capital of Tunisia. At its height, the Carthaginian Empire stretched all throughout the western half of the North African coast, into parts of Sicily and the Iberian Peninsula, which is basically modern-day Spain and Portugal. That's a pretty big empire, right? So why is it that no one remembers Carthage? Why is it that when people do remember them throughout history, it's almost never in a favorable light? I mean, to give you an example of this, in the 1700s, in the era of mercantilism, when every great European power was out for blood against each other, the French actually tried to label Britain as some sort of savage, greedy, Carthaginian empire with their powerful navy and trade network, well, they portrayed themselves, immersed in neoclassicism as they were at the time, as a sort of new Rome. The Carthaginians are just completely unrepresented in our age-old narrative of history. And part of that lies in the fact that we just don't have that much about them. We get scraps of information, just scraps, from archaeology and acknowledgements from historians. But most of the time, these are just pieces in a puzzle the complete picture of which is an entire civilization that is just alien to us. And this brings us to the second reason that the Carthaginians are so underrepresented. Their perspective was destroyed systematically by the West. And when I say the West, I am of course referring to Greece and Rome, Greco-Roman civilization in general. It's confusing because the city of Carthage was actually farther west than Rome was. But this relates to what I'm getting at here, because there was actually a whole other Western tradition on the other side of the Mediterranean, and that was Carthaginian tradition, or as the Romans would have put it, Punic. Now, both of these traditions have vastly different cultures and perspectives of how the world works, but the reason that we know so little about one of these perspectives is that one, the one that we still live with, comes from Rome, which is inhabited by people to this day, and the other one came from what is now a desolate ruin that lies in a Tunisian suburb. Throughout this series, I'll try my absolute best to piece the Punic puzzle together, but it won't be easy. 
unlike with the Greeks and the Romans, we barely have any records or writings from the Carthaginians themselves. They must have had a rich culture, a distinct religion, and an oral tradition worthy of remembering, because what little we do have about them is already so enthralling. But to quote Richard Miles, an expert on the Carthaginians whose tireless research, among others, I used in my own quest to understand these people, Carthage stands as a stark reminder of how ruthlessly the past has been selected for us. Who were these other people that used to inhabit the Mediterranean then? Just as the roots of Roman tradition are mostly found in Greece, the roots of Punic tradition start with the Phoenicians. But even more so than the Greeks, the Phoenicians did not identify politically and sometimes even culturally as one people. First of all, the word Phoenician was never actually used by the Phoenicians, although for simplicity's sake, that's just what I'll be calling them. And that's just a name that the Greeks gave them, which literally refers to the purple dye that the city-states on the coast of Canaan, known to us today as the Levant, or the western part of the Middle East, would sell. In reality, Phoenicia was really just a group of competing city-states with similarities in customs and religious practices, but they weren't of a homogenous culture or ethnic identity that united them like Pan-Hellenism united the Greeks. And I mean, even that is just an oversimplification of the Greeks, who before they referred to themselves as Hellenes, were originally different peoples, like the native Mycenaeans, you know, the people of the Iliad and the Odyssey, and the Dorians and Ionians and Achaeans. It just goes to show that there's more to history than our common notions of it will ever reveal to us. So of course the Phoenicians never would have called themselves Phoenicians, and there's even some debate amongst scholars that they wouldn't have even called themselves Canaanites either. The ancient land of Canaan encompasses parts of modern-day Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, Jordan, and Israel, and it had a plethora of ethnic groups living in it in different periods. The reason that we tend to think of the term Canaanite as one ethnicity rather than just a geographic descriptor has a lot to do with how they're portrayed in the Bible. And now that I've spent so much time deconstructing myths about these mysterious Phoenicians, I think it's about time to paint an accurate picture of them from a blank canvas. The Phoenicians were of Semitic origin, meaning their ancestors were ancient Semites who migrated out of Arabia at some point. This actually makes them related to groups such as the Hebrews and the Arabs. And these proto-Phoenicians had established fishing villages on the coast of Canaan, what we'll call Phoenicia from now on, in Neolithic times at least. The first Phoenician city-state that evolved out of this network of Neolithic communities was Byblos, or as it would have been known in its native Phoenician language, Gubla. By 3000 BC, Byblos was a thriving city with a dynasty of kings and was already trading goods with the Egyptians and their immediate neighbors. Now, the mind-blowing thing is that this early on in their history, Byblos had an efficient, well-oiled trade network set up. They got copper from the island of Cyprus, which was pretty close by, timber from the inland cedar groves, and tin from Anatolia. That's the central plains of modern-day Turkey to you. And to top it all off, they had developed seafaring ships with curved hulls to do all of this. For comparison, at this time, the Egyptians were still using flat-hulled ships that could handle the tranquil Nile River, but wouldn't stand up to even the calmest seas. And they were doing all this by 3000 BC. That's 5,000 years ago, guys. 
it really is a testament to the sheer cleverness of human beings and the power of society. By the time we get to 2000 BC, other well-known Phoenician city-states like Sidon, Tyre, and Eridos were competing with Byblos to dominate trade all over their known world. In general, these cities shared some basic features, such as a harbor, a king, and a special god known as a Baal, who protected and sponsored the city, among others. Now, this isn't to say that the cities were carbon copies of each other, however. As the centuries wore on, each city would develop their own coinage, albeit with common motifs like the Byreme and the Hippocamp, worship various Canaanite deities, and produce architecture and art. Archaeological evidence allows us to compare the cultural influences that manifested in each individual city-state. According to Phoenician historian Josephine Quinn, whose work on this subject you should totally check out, we've managed to uncover Syrian styles in Eridos, Egyptian styles in Byblos, and Assyrian and Persian styles in Sidon, for example. The architecture of Sidon alone was influenced by Greece, Persia, Egypt, and Cyprus, all at different points in its history. And this brings us to an idea that is critical in understanding the nature of Phoenician civilization. The period that we've been tracking the Phoenicians through, from 3000 BC to roughly 1200 BC, and I know that's a lot of time, but that just tells you how sparse the evidence is about this whole group of people, is known as the Bronze Age. And the way we tend to think of it is really just a superficial conception of the geopolitical landscape. At some point in high school, we all learned about the interplay between the five great powers of the area. You have the Hittites up in Anatolia, again, that's central Turkey, uh, the Egyptians, and the Assyrians in northern Iraq and parts of Syria. Then you have the Mycenaeans of what would become Greece, and the Babylonians of southern Iraq. And while it is certainly true that these empires wielded real political power over their subject lands, we often ignore the myriad ethnic and cultural divisions of the Near East at this time. There's a quote that I really think gets the point across from the works of popular historian Will Durant, who, whatever his faults and the faults of his time, is a wonderful writer. I really think you should check out some of his stuff, too, if you want a more broad layout of this period. And he's trying to illustrate the staggering diversity of the Bronze Age. Quote, Behind and around these great empires, Egypt, Babylonia, Assyria, and Persia, flowered this medley of half-nomad, half-settled tribes, Cimmerians, Cilicians, Cappadocians, Bithynians, Ashkanians, Mycenaeans, Maonians, Carians, Lycaeans, Pamphylians, Pisidians, Lycaonians, Philistines, Amorites, Canaanites, Edomites, Ammonites, Moabites, and a hundred other peoples, each of which felt itself at the center of geography and history, and would have marveled at the ignorant prejudice of a historian who would reduce them to a paragraph. He then goes on, in only one chapter, mind you, to describe a series of more settled peoples that lived around the Great Bronze Age empires, which actually includes a few sparse pages about the Phoenicians. And how does he conclude this brief segment about them in a 900-page volume on the history of the East? He writes that, quote, the Phoenicians deserve some niche in the Hall of Civilizations. So, no matter how self-aware he's being about it, the ignorant, prejudiced historian is exactly the role that Durant is playing here. But, to be fair, 
who can blame him? I mean, he was working with even less solid evidence than we have today, and you can really hear his disappointment and wonder when he writes, Who now were these Phoenicians, who have so often been spoken of in these pages, whose ships sailed every sea, whose merchants bargained in every port? The historian is abashed before any question of origins. He must confess that he knows next to nothing about either the early or late history of this ubiquitous yet elusive people. It gets back to my original point at the beginning of the episode, which is probably going to come up again in some future series. We don't have the array of writings or oral traditions from any of these people that we do from the Greeks and Romans, which makes their history seem bereft and barbaric. The Phoenician city-states were just part of this estuary of people, and they oscillated between independence and paying tribute to the bigger kids on the block. So let's map out the larger strokes of this interval of political change. Around 1600 BC, the Hittites up in Anatolia conquered some of the lands of Canaan and interfered with the affairs of the nearby Phoenician cities. And this lasted until 1550 BC, when the Egyptians wrested more permanent control of Canaan and the greater Levant from the Hittites and incorporated it into the empire of the New Kingdom. So they go from Hittite to Egyptian rule pretty quickly, that's what, like 50 years? The Phoenician cities were then forced to pay tribute to their Egyptian overlords, but to their benefit, their territory was not directly administered by them. And with their old monarchy still in place, and the Baal still ensuring their religious safety and prosperity, Phoenicia actually remained somewhat stable. But for the Phoenicians, stable was kind of like a relative term. So, throughout the span of Egyptian rule, city-states maintained their lucrative trade routes, squabbled with each other for the favor of the pharaoh, and at times even made war on other states and tribes as they had for centuries. The evidence that we have for this comes from the Amarna letters, which are a series of cuneiform tablets that come from the palace of the infamous pharaoh Akhenaten at Amarna, that document diplomatic correspondence between the Egyptian pharaohs and the numerous kingdoms and empires all over the Egyptian sphere of influence. Many of these letters concern the local Canaanite powers, particularly the Phoenician city-states. Now here's one author's take on the constant struggle that played out between these bickering sister cities. And these letters that he's quoting are from around the 1350s to 1340s BC. Quote, Many of the letters were written by kings and governors of Phoenician towns and begged the pharaoh for help against enemies. Abi Milki of Tyre, writing to the pharaoh Akhenaten, asked for assistance and warns that Zimreda, the king of Sidon, has written day by day to the criminal Aziru and the son of Abdu Ashirta. Behold, I have written to my lord, for it is good that you should know. Another Phoenician prince, Ribadi of Byblos, was having trouble with the same Aziru a ruler of the Ammonites, which were a tribe, in the desert. Writes Ribadi, My younger brother is estranging Byblos in order to give the city to the sons of Abdu Ashirta. When my brother saw that my courier came out of Egypt empty-handed, that there were no garrison troops with him, he despised me, and so he committed a crime and drove me from the city. Let the king not restrain himself at the deed of this dog. While Akhenaten was pondering this request, there came another letter from Abi Milki of Tyre. 
He was now hard-pressed by Zimrata of Sidon, who is in league with the hated Aziru. Wrote Abi Milki, We are besieged. Our plight is terrible. We have no wood, no water, no land in which to bury the dead. But then came word to Akhenaten from Zimrata himself, pledging eternal loyalty to Egypt and asking for help in waging war against the pharaoh's enemies. Now that is some crazy, confusing stuff, right? You have Rabadi and you have this guy Abi Milki. They're both kings of Tyre and Byblos. And then you have this guy Zimrata, who is the king of Sidon, and he's backstabbing them to get more control of the territory. And he's using this Ammonite tribal leader or king, Aziru. I mean, it, it reads like something out of Game of Thrones. You know, you really wish that you had the whole Herodotus-like spin on this with all the details and the dramatic flares, because it really would make a great story. But unfortunately, we just have a ton of cuneiform documents. And it really demonstrates how politically disunited the Phoenicians actually were, even under the thumb of an all-powerful pharaoh. Now, the struggle for Phoenicia by powers great and small would persist for some time. The Hittites and Egyptians were embroiled in conflict after conflict after conflict over the Levant until a hurricane of events unfolded that would shake up the Bronze Age world to its core. The combination of natural disasters, famine, disease, and invading and migrating peoples possibly all linked to each other. The Bronze Age collapse. It's one of the greatest and most contentious periods of civilizational decline in human history. Four out of the five Bronze Age empires succumbed to it, and its lone survivor, Assyria, was greatly weakened. Around 1200 BC, the Egyptian empire crumbled, in part from invasions from the Libyans to the west, and also by the Sea Peoples, which is the modern name that we have for the multitude of tribes that suddenly just appear all over the place in the historical record during the collapse. But the Phoenician city-states, though, actually managed to stay intact throughout this whole period of turmoil. They didn't even mind it that much when the Peliset, one of those elusive sea peoples, settled to the south of them in the 1100s BC and became the biblically famous Philistines, which, for those of you who are really into studying the Middle East, might think sounds similar to the word Palestine. There's actually a ton of migration to Phoenicia during this time, especially from the Mycenaean cities, remember that's what's now modern-day Greece in the Bronze Age, who were dealing with their own set of invasions and environmental problems. And this means that despite their Semitic language, the ethnicity of these Phoenician cities is actually much harder to pin down. With most of the empires near them in shambles, the Phoenicians enter what we now classify as their Golden Age. It's from this point on that levels of trade between the Phoenicians and pretty much everyone else in the Mediterranean peak, and we start to see their colonies take shape. With no larger powers regulating their harbors, each Phoenician city was free to sell to whoever they saw fit. Trade was no longer dominated solely by the state, and a competitive market arose not just between cities, but inside them. As trade with the Mediterranean boomed, Phoenician sailors and merchants became a more permanent fixture in places like Cyprus, North Africa, and Andalusia, that's the southern hills of Spain, where they would erect shrines to their Baal and other culturally Phoenician features. By 1100 BC, Tyre had established formal colonies in these regions, 
Ketion on the coast of Cyprus, which the Tyrian merchants re-inhabited after it was abandoned by its natives, was the first of these ventures. It solidified the exchange of copper that had been going on for centuries, and soon enough, Tyre, hoping to achieve a similar result with silver, set up the colony of Lyxis on the coast of North Africa near modern-day Morocco. And this was in congruence with the foundation of Utica in modern-day Tunisia, which was already a popular resting place for Phoenician merchant ships and grew out of a need to defend them along the trade route on the North African coast. Now, you've probably noticed that I'm starting to mention the city of Tyre pretty frequently, and that is because they're the new up-and-coming Phoenician power. This all culminates a little after 1000 BC, when under the rule of the willful king Hiram, Tyre stepped out of the shadows of Byblos and Sidon as the eminent city of the region. And maybe it's because we have more accounts of his policies given uh, all the biblical references to him, and I'm sure that there were other Phoenician kings that were like him in spirit, but Hiram really seems to be one of these earth shakers that's just a rare treat in a monarchical system. He's really fun to read about, and you can just imagine him having one of those fascinating, enigmatic personalities that great rulers always seem to have. But I have to keep reminding myself that, unfortunately, we just don't have any direct documentation about him from the Phoenicians themselves. Think about how much more fleshed out history could be if we had these records of destroyed civilizations. Kind of getting back to that intro. One of Hiram's great achievements during his rule from 980 to 947 BC was his diplomatic outreach towards the legendary King David of the Bible, who ruled the United Kingdoms of Israel and Judah. He started off strong with a great gift to the king of the Israelites, the gift of cedar wood. When David's son Solomon took his place on the throne, Hiram helped bankroll the king's palace and the famous Temple of Solomon, exporting cedar wood, stone, and intricate silver and gold carvings necessary for its completion. From here, he negotiated a critical trade deal with Tyre, in which for payment in silver talents to Israel, he would receive grain and olive oil for which to feed his people with. Eventually, the Israelites even sold the fertile mountains of Galilee to Tyre, a breadbasket that further expanded their food production capabilities beyond just fishing. But there was another element to this alliance that Richard Miles points out in his brief overview of Hiram's accomplishments, an element which really illuminates Hiram's wily pragmatism. Magnanimous relations with Israel gave Tyre a monopoly on trade with the inland routes to the east, where goods from Persia and beyond made their way to Jerusalem and vice versa. Israel and Tyre went so far as to partake in a naval expedition from the Red Sea out past the Gulf of Aden that might have brought in traded goods from as far as India. Now, perhaps the greatest impact that Hiram had on his city, and as we'll see, the city of Carthage, was his consolidation of religious power. As we've mentioned before, Phoenician religion was pretty complicated. Each city worshipped patron gods known as Baal. The Baal were usually more minor gods that had a specific domain, much like those of the Greek pantheon. So you know how Dionysus is the god of madness and wine and partying, while Athena is the goddess of wisdom and war, and Apollo is the god of prophecy and music and medicine. Like that. So to make things more complicated, though, 
There was also an immensely important god known as Baal, with a capital B, who was responsible for granting fertility and life to the land. He was the lord of all these minor gods. And this starts to make a little more sense when you take into consideration that the word Baal is actually a common noun in Canaanite languages that meant lord or ruler. Now, for all you Lord of the Flies fans out there, this is actually where the word Beelzebub was derived. Originally, it was Baal Zebab, a Canaanite god who some Israelites worshipped much to the chagrin of their religious leaders. And eventually, that developed into a synonym for Satan. Additionally, you had El and his consort Asherah, the supreme leaders of the universe, who kind of functioned as Big Baal's bosses. Say that three times fast. So in Tyre, as with all the other Phoenician cities, there were massive temple complexes, along with smaller places of worship, dedicated to these gods, especially Baal, El, and Asherah. These were, of course, run by priests who wielded immense political power in their cities, as priests did all over the ancient world. I think as members of a secular and globalized world, it's really hard for us to understand the effect that religion had on people at this time. I mean, we have organized religion in the modern era, but trust me, we don't do religion like the ancients did religion. And there's a lot of problems with this analogy, but I think the best analogy in our historical tradition that comes closest to how these people would have thought these ancient Eastern religions would have worked, that we can kind of wrap our head around, is how influential the Catholic Church was in the Middle Ages. But even then, like the customs of these two branches of religions are just wildly different. And there are all these little idiosyncrasies to ancient religion that are just completely alien to us. I mean, I could spend a whole episode just bouncing between all the wacky and sometimes terrifying rituals and beliefs that this period saw, and that's one of the things that so interests me about this particular angle. The other one, and I have a feeling I'll mention this a lot, is that these societies believe in the outright supernatural. You know, when I was a kid, I used to daydream about getting my letter to Hogwarts and going off to learn magic and make myself invisible or send objects flying around my room. You know, typical stuff like that. And one of the things I loved about ancient history as I grew a little older is that I got to hold on to a bit of that childhood wonder. Because guess what, folks? In ancient history, magic totally exists. It's tangible. You can observe its effects. And the reason for that is simply that people believe it exists. I mean, imagine this for a little thought experiment. Let's say that you and your family are subsistence farmers. That means you're basically just farming for survival and not for commercial reasons or profit or anything like that. You're subsistence farmers on the banks of a river. Life is hard. The river floods frequently, so access to food is rather unpredictable for everyone in your community. But one day, a priest comes along, and he invokes prayers and sacrifices to his gods and supplicates to them to ensure the fertility of the land. And what's more, he can predict when the river will flood, and after it floods, the soil becomes fertile. And with this system in place, and absolutely no knowledge of time or physics or how rivers work, I guarantee you that you are going to be a true believer in that priest and his gods. For ancient people, the supernatural was just a part of everyday life, and death for that matter. And this is a wonderful example of the sociological principle of the self-fulfilling prophecy at work. And researchers have proved the palpable effects of this on people. You've probably heard of experiments done with children, right? Where 
you'll sit down a bunch of kids and have them take a test. And they'll have a control group, of course. And then they'll tell one group that the test should be easy for them, you know, because they're so smart. And another group that the test is going to be really difficult because they're just too stupid to get it. And it's harsh, I know, but, you know, that's how experiments work. You know, you got to prove a point. And the point is that when people believe something, it becomes real in a sense because everyone is acting on that belief. So now that we have a sense of just how integral these religious institutions and the priests that ran them were to the functioning of society, we can really appreciate the genius of what Hiram is about to do even more. Now, it's not a unique move in history, but the difference here is that it actually proved effective and it laid the foundations for the religious practices of Carthage, which is what this whole season is going to be about. Hiram is going to hijack one of the gods of the city, to oversee not just the hearts and minds, but the very souls of his subjects. That god, Melkart, has always been an important deity in Tyre, but after Hiram, he became almost synonymous with Tyre. Melkart was a Baal, one of those smaller-time gods that we mentioned earlier, and he was worshipped far back in Tyre's history, along with El Asherah, the big Baal, and some other smaller Baals. Hiram shook things up by ordering the construction of massive temples to be built, honoring Melkart and his consort Astarte, who, incidentally, is another form of the Babylonian goddess Ishtar. And I have to just say this now, Ishtar is my favorite god or goddess in any pantheon ever. So definitely expect a episode on her and the Babylonians coming up at some point in the future. Now, when I say massive... I really do mean massive. These temples were run by thousands of people. Priests, scribes, slaves, even sex workers were all woven in an intricate system of rituals, holidays, administration, and temple services. Hiram directly managed the temples and cultivated the notion that Melkart was the patron god of the city and the state. Richard Miles, uh, that Carthaginian historian we've been mentioning a lot, puts it quite eloquently while also giving you an idea of what some of these religious ceremonies would have looked like when he writes that, quote, Through worship of Melkart, the king could portray himself as the bridge between the temporal and the celestial worlds, and the needs of the heavenly gods could closely correspond with the political exigencies of the palace. The king even introduced an elaborate new ceremonial to celebrate the annual festival of Melkart. Each spring, in a carefully choreographed festival called the Idrisus, an effigy of the god was placed on a giant raft before being ritually burnt as it drifted out to sea while hymns were sung by the assembled crowds. For the Tyrians, as for many other ancient Near Eastern peoples, the emphasis fell upon the restorative properties of fire, for the god himself was not destroyed but revived by the smoke. The burnings of the effigy thus represented his rebirth. To emphasize the importance of Idrisus in maintaining the internal cohesion of the Tyrian people, all foreigners had to leave the city for the duration of the ceremony. Afterwards, the king and his chief consort would take the roles of Melkart and Astarte in a ritual marriage which guaranteed the well-being and fertility of the king as well as his legitimate authority. Indeed, the ceremony went far beyond ritual pageantry and roleplay. It strongly suggested that the king was nothing less than the living embodiment of the great Melkart, end quote. Now, I don't know about you, but I would totally pay good money just to see that. 
Imagine the spectacle of the burning effigy, or better yet, imagine, remember, these people all believed in the supernatural, being a willing, believing participant in the crowd, all the emotions that that would entail. What a human experience. So, all of Hiram's reform solidified into real tradition, and later legends place Melkart at the founding of Tyre and claim that it is he who the Tyrian royal family were descended from. El, Asherah, and the other Baal were not forgotten, but they were no longer as influential as they had once been, giving Hiram de facto rule over all the institutions of his city and proto-empire. Now, we're really starting to zoom in on the city of Carthage for reasons that you'll discover in coming episodes, so it's time that I go into more detail about the city and its level of sophistication during the Golden Age. Before I do this, though, there's one other major thing that Tyre is known for, and something that I just can't keep putting off discussing, and that is purple dye. More specifically, the innovations that the city made in the purple dye industry. Besides their alphabet and mercantilist tendencies, purple dye is the most famous legacy of the Phoenicians, as it made them immensely wealthy. Naturally occurring purple dye was very rare, it came in two species of the Murex genus of mollusk, named millennia later by the taxonomer Carl Linnaeus, who any of you who have taken a bio class should know. These species both had hypobranchial glands that produced a thick mucus of a rich wine color. The Phoenician city-states had been extracting this mucus, processing it into dye, and selling it at exorbitant rates since the Bronze Age, but during this period, Tyre managed to significantly industrialize the process. There's a reason the dye was often called Tyrian purple, after all. It was hugely important to the Tyrians culturally and economically. The discovery of purple dye is even attributed to Melkart himself, who according to a myth discovered it while walking his dog along the beach with his consort Astarte. We tend to think of production before the Industrial Revolution as either domestic or in small artisanal workshops, but sometimes the ancient world has eerie similarities to our own, and this is an example that I want to do justice to. Fortunately, we have a description of the process given by the Roman historian Pliny the Elder. According to him, the mollusks would be collected in large quantities with nets and deep water. They would then be shipped to huge factories in Tyre, where they would first be crushed and dried out. Next, the glands of the mollusks were soaked in a salt brine for three days, after which they would be stuffed into rather durable vessels of lead and boiled down in furnaces. Apparently, the Phoenicians, and especially Tyre, had it down to such a science that they could use additives to give the dye a richer hue. Urine, for example. <laughs> which is a little bit gross, but to the Phoenicians, money is money. Thus, purple dye production was the ultimate luxury market of the time, like fine wine, with plenty of intricacies and variation. Once the shade of the dye was perfected, textiles were soaked in the dye, the more expensive ones repeatedly for that extra bit of hue. What's really astounding about this whole process isn't the complexity of it, but the scale. Apparently, the smell of rotting mollusks was so pungent that Tyre's dye factories were on the outskirts of the city, and Sidons were actually miles away from the city proper. Because it took so many mollusks to make just a scoopful of dye, the mollusks were hunted down to near extinction, 
extinction, folks. This is thousands of years ago. There are accounts of mounds of broken shells being dumped outside the city that reach more than 100 feet high. Could you imagine the amount of labor needed to hit those numbers? It's just another thing I'd pay money to see. And maybe that makes me a little bit weird, but in my defense, I'd definitely bring some nose plugs with me. And speaking of things that would absolutely blow your mind, we need to talk about the cosmopolitan metropolis that was the Phoenician city-state. Now, I don't have time to give an in-depth analysis of all of them, so I'll just focus on Tyre, because that's going to be the one that's pretty important for the rest of our story. Now, we've already covered the elements of the city, but I'll give you the general outline. Picture this in your mind's eye. Tyre, in this time period, was built on a large island right off the coast, making it much more defensible than its sister cities. It had two harbors on the north and south ends of the island, with giant shipyards and warehouses for all the incoming and outgoing goods. The city was completely walled and fortified, and the inside followed a common upper city, lower city layout that the Phoenicians usually practiced. There were the larger temple complexes that we discussed earlier, along with the royal palace that was inhabited by Hiram. Much of the architecture was multicultural, taking influences from Greece and Egypt and its use of columns. Many of the smaller buildings were most likely finely crafted from cedar wood. We can also guess that metalwork must have played a role in the aesthetics of the city as well. Tyre was well known for great workshops, where everything from sculpture to tools were made with silver, gold, copper, lead, and tin. Pottery was yet another major export, and large quantities of it have been found all throughout the Mediterranean. Wouldn't you just kill to see what this all looked like? I have this common fantasy about going back in time and just walking on the streets of different societies and noticing the sights and the smells and the sounds and how they compare to the ones that I'm used to. I'm definitely one of those people that would get a kick out of a renaissance fair or some sort of historical theme park, open to suggestions. I think that's what so intrigues me about social history, you know, the effect that culture and the way of life have on the human experience. And not that big, sweeping, dramatic events or dull or anything. Uh, and there's going to be plenty of those coming up. Carthage, the history of it, anyway, actually ends with a huge one. But the little minutiae of day-to-day -day life in these societies are extremely underrated as well. So, let's give some attention to these minutiae of the Phoenician Golden Age. First off, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't discuss the economic achievements of this commercial powerhouse of a region. Aside from Phoenician coinage, which is extremely widespread by the way, archaeologists find Phoenician coins all over North Africa, Italy, and Spain, the Phoenicians are the people that gave the rest of the modern world weights. Think about how simple but profound that is to weigh things you're trading. It helps you standardize the exchange of goods, right? It helps keep commerce a much more even playing ground, and free trade becomes even more accessible as a result. Not only that, there are some scholars that think the Phoenicians gave people like the Greeks the very idea of interest. Now that's something that really overhauls an economy. If you can have a long-term system of dealing with debts, right? The Phoenicians had these ancient banking systems that helped support the grandiose economies and colonies that they had cultivated. In some sense, these cities really were plutocracies, plain and simple. And just as the boom in trade fostered a more 
complicated and diverse economy, it also created a need for better navigation. The Phoenicians were already pretty good astronomers. That's a skill set that the Canaanites had picked up over time from other civilizations like the Babylonians, who were the astronomers of the Near East. So the technique of using Polaris, which is the North Star at the very end of the handle of the Little Dipper, to navigate the seas not just during the day, but at night. Now, any of you American listeners, and I'm assuming that most of you are American, you know, just given the general location that I'm podcasting from, should recognize this process as a bit familiar, and that's because escaped slaves in the antebellum south would use the North Star to navigate to the free, or let's say freer, states in the north. But back to the Phoenicians. So ships in this era would often travel along the coast and then beach themselves at night to set up camp and rest. They didn't really trust the sea that much. Uh, and with the use of Polaris, this could be done less frequently. And the good thing about this method is that Ursa Minor, the constellation that Polaris is in, is actually circumpolar, so it never leaves the night sky throughout the seasons. The Phoenicians also made strides in naval technology that made their ships unrivaled in durability and speed. They had a method of making their ship hulls less prone to leaking by treating them with pitch and bitumen. They were also the inventors of the trireme, which is basically a ship with three rows of oars as opposed to the bireme, which only had two. There's another thing that we should give the Phoenicians credit for. It's actually the most common reason people will name drop them. It's their alphabet. It was a Semitic alphabet of 22 characters that had no vowel sounds at all. Most importantly, though, it was phonetic, meaning that instead of each symbol in their writing corresponding to a word in their language, they would spell out words using the sounds that the letters made, kind of like how we do it. This made writing much easier to use for administration and documentation, which was another boon to their economy. And this is because, you know, if you're a scribe, you only have to learn 22 characters rather than a ton of different symbols that represent every single word that you're trying to convey. This alphabet spread to many of their colonies and is actually the basis for both the Greek and Latin alphabets, meaning that the Phoenicians are indirectly responsible for the shapes of the letters we use today. I hope I've managed to breathe life into a civilization that is usually relegated to a 15-minute lecture in most world history classes. We so often forget that there are entirely different modes of living that just because we don't inhabit them now doesn't mean they never existed. It's worth visiting the world of the Phoenicians, as it's worth doing for every other culture and society that have been banished to a footnote in our textbooks. Anyway, it's here in the golden age of Tyre and the Phoenicians that we'll leave them off for now, as we're coming to the point where Tyre starts to expand their colonial ambitions. Eventually, they would come to settle dozens of colonies in Iberia, the whole coast of North Africa, Cyprus, Sicily, and Malta, and tons of other Mediterranean islands. We will return to the Phoenicians to observe their development in congruence with their mercantile empire overseas, as well as their eventual downfall. One of their cities, though, will in the coming centuries take up the mantle of Phoenician culture and legacy. That city is Carthage, the origins of which we will examine in the next episode of Wonders of History.